Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second year grad student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign studying weird transient events. I'm Melana Rice. I'm a third year grad student at Yale University studying various planet things, solar and extrasolar. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a second year grad student at Boston University studying the atmospheres of planets. You're listening to episode one. If you haven't yet, make sure to check out episode zero, where we introduce ourselves and talk a little bit more about the structure of this podcast. But as for today, we're going to talk a little bit about disks, which, to be honest, I know very little about, so I'm not sure why I'm hosting, but <laughs> I'm hoping to learn a lot from this episode. What I do know is that disks are ubiquitous in the universe. Melena, what makes a disk? Throughout the universe, uh, gas and dust are really very common throughout all different scales of space. Um, and when this gas and dust begins to collapse, it also needs to spin in order to conserve angular momentum. Um, and so we get all different size scales of these disks that are formed from these collapsing spinning clouds of gas and dust. This occurs at all different scales from moon type scales through planets, stars and galaxies, where all of these different uh, types of structures are thought to form in disks or in the case of galaxies, be disks. Melena, I have a quick question on that. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that things get spinning because they were already spinning and the contraction just makes them spin faster. But why were they spinning to begin with? I think that they weren't necessarily already spinning so much as they were moving in random directions. And once they fall inwards, then there needs to be some dominant random direction in which they will ultimately spin. So I don't think I they're see. actually starting to spin, but they're just moving randomly all over space. Yeah, I was about to say, I think this touches on kind of a bulk motion versus individual motion question that I'm hoping to get to a little bit later. But as for right now, let's start small and then work our way up in sizes when talking about different disks. So Milena, what are the smallest disks like? Right. So my um, Astrobyte is actually talking about some of the smaller disks that are known throughout the universe. It's um, called Moonitesimals Likely Form Relatively Early is the Astrobyte title, but it's by Samuel Factor. Um, and it's about a paper that was written by Perez et al. 2019. And in this paper, the authors use the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, um, ALMA, which is an array of radio telescopes, to search for moonitesimals around exoplanets, where moonitesimals are thought to be the building blocks of moons, kind of similar to um, a more common term as planetesimals, which are the building box blocks of planets, and this is the moon version of that idea. I've also heard the term uh, satellite decimals, but maybe that one's not used as commonly. <laughs> I actually have never heard that one, but... <laughs> <laughs> I swear it exists. I'm glad that it exists. <laughs> so, so, Milena, how would astronomers know if they had found moon decimals? 
Um, so in this particular paper, what they were searching for was the emission from a disk that would exist around a planet. Um, so the idea here is that these planets may have formed in disks around, or sorry, these moons may have formed in disks around their host planets. Um, and then if they did, then the, there should be some dust emission that you should be able to see around these young planets early on before the moons actually form. Um, but in this paper, they didn't actually find it. Um, they were just sort of looking for what ended up being a null detection. Got it. Got it. But surely a non-detection is still useful. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, just because they didn't find these moonatessimals doesn't mean they didn't learn anything from this. Um, there are a couple of different reasons that they might not have found what they were looking for. Maybe the dust already grew into larger rocks, and if that's the case, then we wouldn't be able to see um, larger dust grains with ALMA because we can only really see roughly millimeter-sized dust grains with this particular wavelength. Um, and so that's a strong possibility. Otherwise, there, there may have just not been moons forming in this system. So that's also possible. Actually, they looked at, I think, four systems. So multiple systems where potentially there weren't moons. Um, and so these are all possibilities. If the dust did grow into larger grains earlier on, then that implies that moonatesimals and moons form quite quickly. Um, or maybe there just wasn't a moon. It really could go either way. I, I like the idea that we could have had a non-detection because the dust was too large to detect. I feel like that's the opposite of what you usually uh, think of in astronomy. Yeah, it's a weird, like, backwards <laughs> type of <laughs> argument. So, so what are some <laughs> of the assumptions that go into a model like this? Um, yeah, so in this model... Um, we are assuming that all the giant planets will have moons that form around them um, in a plane. And so the reason for this assumption is that within the solar system, the giant planets all have their moons orbiting around their spin axis. Um, and so they are all roughly coplanar, um, besides captured moons, which are a whole other can of worms. Um, we're also assuming that these moonatessimals form in the same way that the solar system ones did. So we've never actually seen any of these moons in extrasolar systems. We've only actually found the ones in our solar system. And so that's kind of the model that we're using to explore and look for new ones. Um, and they're also assuming a particular mass for these systems because the mass of all the moons around each of the giant planets in our system is roughly one ten thousandth times the mass of the planet. So they're assuming that that's a universal law. That's not necessarily the case. It just seems to be the case within our solar system. Um, so there are a lot of potential assumptions that go in here that lead us to hopefully some interesting conclusions about moons eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Will, Will, what do you think about all this? I really find the idea of using our solar system as a model for what's in the universe as an interesting concept. The astrobite I read this week is called The Imprint of an Invisible Giant by Spencer Wallace, and that covers a paper by Childs and others from 2019. So, so really quickly, before we dive into your astrobite, what's the size scale of disks that we're going to be working with here? 
So this bite is covering circumstellar disks. That is a disk around a star where planets can form. And then some of those planets might even have disks of their own, which is what Milena was talking about. And of course, the most famous circumstellar disk is the one that formed our solar system. And at some point, the entire solar system was a disk. But now the only parts of the disk that are left, so to speak, are the outer portions that we call the Kuiper Belt and potentially the Oort Cloud. Yeah, so you mentioned this for a second. I want to just return back for a little bit to the point that you had made earlier about using our solar system as a model. Uh, I think it's an interesting point because, true, it's it's close, and we can study a lot of aspects of our solar system directly, but what if we're just weird? What if the way that our solar system formed is not archetypal for solar systems elsewhere? Uh, and well, the truth is we, we just don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. When but you're I mean, only looking at one. Yeah, but I don't know. Coming from statistics background, using a sample size of one and then extrapolating a trend from that is generally a very, <laughs> very bad idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that my astrobite was doing something pretty similar where they they actually have a population size of zero for extrasolar oh, moons, but um, we're looking probably at... probably worse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and we're looking at the solar system as a model. So really, it is, it's it's sort of a sample size of one. You can maybe even argue a sample size of four for each of the planets. Um, but, you know, you have to start somewhere. And it seems unlikely that something like the solar system, at least in some characteristics, would have only formed once. Um, so, you know, that's a common argument for life out there. But even more basic than that, we would expect that there would potentially also be other moons out there. And that's kind of a reason that we're looking for moons in the first place. And if they do exist, then looking for the ones that are easy to recognize that are kind of what we would expect based on what we've already seen uh, is at least a good starting point, if not necessarily capturing the full picture. Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. Um, In terms of the bite I read, the idea was let's boil down the way our solar system formed into the most uh, important mechanisms and then see how we can find those mechanisms elsewhere. And in our solar system, Jupiter is the most significant planet when it comes to Earth's evolution. Should I, because should I break the news to Earth or do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not that important. Um, but the, the truth is that Jupiter effectively cleared out a lot of debris that could have hit Earth at many times in our history. And in fact, it's theorized that some of these, um, these impacts and the uh, interactions of small bodies with Jupiter brought uh, asteroids to Earth that contained water and delivered us the oceans that we have today. Um, but how exactly Jupiter formed is a very different issue. We have no idea. And it's partially because finding exo-Jupiters, that is Jupiters outside the solar system, is a nearly impossible task. We found a lot of them, a lot of extrasolar planets, but not a lot of exo-Jupiters. Well, 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 well. I don't know. I don't know if you've been checking the news recently, man. But hot Jupiters are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, from my understanding, Jupiter is a cold Jupiter uh, because it's it's not self-luminous. Um, it's pretty much just reflecting sunlight. And so the yeah, the issue of hot versus cold Jupiters. Um, I wish I knew more about this topic, and it's something I, I intend to learn more about. But from this astrobot, I learned specifically about cold Jupiters. So, so just to recap, hot Jupiters, easy to find. Cold Jupiters, hard to find. My understanding is the reason that hot Jupiters are easier to find is because they tend to also be 
closer to their star as we found them. Not that they all are, but the ones we found are. Um, and think about it this way. If you were outside the solar system and looking in, trying to find Jupiter, you have a couple of options. You could wait for it to cross in front of the sun and watch as the sun's light gets slightly dimmed. But that might take 12 years because that's the length of Jupiter's orbit. And uh, we don't really have that much time to wait to see one planet. Um, but if you waited only one year, you would see all four of the terrestrial planets potentially cross in front of the sun. So we have a much easier time finding small, close-in terrestrial planets and a much harder time finding the Jupiters. So the idea of this astrobite is if we can find the terrestrial planets, does that give us enough information to say something about the exo-Jupiters, about the ones that are hard to find? Right, and this is also assuming that each of our planets is exactly in the right orientation for us to be able to see it from far away. Um, and so these Jupiter-sized planets, if they're hot, then that means they're really relatively close to their star because they're getting heated, um, which makes them hotter. That's a good point. Um, yeah, and so they're also really big. And so if they're close to their star and really big, then they're a lot easier to find than these more distant star or planets. And so like even Earth-sized planets, they, they might be in the exact right orientation, but the signal's really hard to find. Um, so there's a lot of complex stuff that go is going on in finding exoplanets. It's a whole crazy endeavor that I am very glad there are a lot of very intelligent people. <laughs> 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 um, and so I think that it's really cool that uh, this is talking about indirect detection of exoplanets, which is um, something that's really important, especially for these planets that are so hard to find with any other method. Um, and it's really interesting that your bite is looking at planets from the existence of other planets, while my bite is also looking at the existence of moons from not actually the moons themselves, but maybe some other signature of them. Um, so it's kind of cool how much that you can learn just through these sort of indirect methods where you're kind mm -hmm. of tiptoeing around the solution, but everything that you find points towards a particular answer that if you just rule out everything else, it has to be right. Indirect detection is such a big theme in astronomy. I mean, the reality is in a lot of other fields, you can go and touch the things you work on, and we can't even get close to them ever. So using every piece of information we can get and learning something from it, even if it's hard, even if it's not obvious, that's kind of the core of what we're doing. Yeah. And it's a fun puzzle. It's really cool that it's possible to do this and just piece together everything. Um, so Alex, we were talking again about lots of different indirect detection and mostly planetary scales. Um, but does your bite also look at any sort of indirect detection? I know it has to be disks, at least. Yeah, it does. <laughs> In fact, look at indirect methods. So you've probably heard at some point that you can't see the forest from the trees. I'm here to tell you that that is wrong, and I can prove it <laughs> because the asteroid that I'm going to be talking about today does exactly that. It looks at the trees in order to get more information about the forest. In this case... The trees are stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and the forest is the Milky Way galaxy itself. So my astrobite is called With Age Comes Wisdom by Jessica Roberts, and it's about a 2019 paper by Gallart and others. So these authors found an incredibly accurate way to determine the ages of stars in the Milky Way by stellar astrometry. That's determining the positions of these stars. 
And with very accurate positioning of the stars, you can better determine their ages, which you can then use to get the history of the galaxy that the stars are found in. So they, they do a couple of different uh, theory things, but they found the early Milky Way progenitor was a thin disk and that it collided with a smaller galaxy and that caused it to bulge into the thick disk from this big messy collision. And the authors used the Gaia space mission to get astrometry of stars in our Milky Way galaxy. It's really amazing. Wow. Uh, I've, I've been reading a little bit about Gaia and I'm thoroughly impressed by their mission and the way that they've been able to get uh, accurate positions of more stars than ever before by an order of magnitude. It's unbelievable. But I didn't know anything about how they can get better ages from Gaia. Could you explain that? Yeah, definitely. So stars, like people, age in pretty predictable ways. <laughs> and if, if you can understand uh, how they're aging, you can look at a star and determine where in its age it is. Uh, and, and two of the ways that you can do this are by determining very accurately a star's uh, brightness or a star's color. And you basically make a big color magnitude diagram of this information. And by running stellar evolution models, you can determine how bright and what color a star should be along its evolution, which you can use to determine how old that star is. The problem with doing it this way is that we don't very, very accurately know what color a star is or how bright a star is. So it's kind of tricky. <laughs> this is unlike people because you can't go right up to these stars and mm. measure these things directly, right? We can only get the uh, measurements that we have in our telescopes. And those measurements of brightness and color are distorted by intervening matter between the stars and us. So, so, so let me just hold up there. Yeah. Um, so you're saying when we look through space, even though it's mostly empty, before we get to the star, there's enough stuff there to change the color of the star. Yeah, so there's a thing called reddening in astronomy okay. in that uh, basically preferentially selects and absorbs uh, blue light from dust and gas in between stars and us. So when we look at stars, we're seeing a little bit of reddening. Interesting. And so the, the color is slightly redder than it should be. And we can correct for this as long as we know how far away that star is. So this is where Gaia comes into play. If we can use Gaia to get very, very accurate positioning of these stars, we can back out where these stars are located, how far away they are, we can correct for things like their reddening. We can run our stellar evolution codes and we can determine their ages. So it really comes down to Gaia just being an unbelievable survey to get more and more and more data and then using the big data portion of this survey to answer the questions. Exactly. And it's kind of funny to me that we even still do astrometry. I don't know. It seems like one of those things that like, People and ships in the 1400s would stay around <laughs> and, and measure the position of every star. But it turns out very accurate astrometry is critical to a lot of things we do in astronomy. So, Alex, would you say that you are getting the stellar forest from the stellar astrometry? <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, I've really been waiting to use that. <laughs> if we're keeping track for this episode, it is one Milena, zero Will and I. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i managed to play on your play on words brilliant <laughs> so alex is your paper mostly observational then um is there a theory that they were trying to prove predominantly the paper is observational but 
they use these observations to develop some underlying theory. And the underlying theory is motivated by the fact that in the extended halo, the big region around the Milky Way disk, they found two main clusters of stars. Clusters as in two groups that were different colors. On the color magnitude diagram, they group. And so there are some blue stars and some red stars. And the authors deduce that the bluer stars came from the uh, small galaxy that collided with the original Milky Way progenitor, and that the larger redder stars came from the uh, Milky Way progenitor. So basically the theory is that a galaxy collided with the early Milky Way galaxy, mixed all these stars around from both bodies, and in the halo you now find these two populations. So this is after they've corrected for the reddening and for the different distances, different ages. After they've done all those corrections, there's still different colors for some reason. Correct, yeah. So they found that they could not attribute the red and blue populations to any of these different correction factors that we were talking about. And so they, they said basically that the smaller a uh, galaxy is, roughly the less uh, metallic, the fewer metals it has within it. And so they can use that to back out the color that you would expect from the uh, the solid populations and then the size of the body that collided with the Milky Way progenitor. Very cool. This is really cool. It's a very different kind of disk where, you know, planetary systems, they're not just constantly crashing into each other, or at least not nearly as often as happens for galaxies. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really interesting that this is something that is so dominant on these larger scales and is this something that happens often for galaxies is the milky way weird or is this common do you know alex i don't know but i do know that there is an astrobite i think somewhat pertinent to this that i think it's called like mergers happen relatively often galaxy mergers Hmm. something related to that that's probably worth checking out maybe we'll discuss that in a future episode (laughs) that title does sound like an answer to the question Well, I'm going to bring us back to my bite. I don't think I got a chance to fully explain it. Um, and I think that the the interesting thing I mentioned earlier about how Jupiter kind of dominates what happened in our solar system, the authors ran a lot of simulations to see um, how giant planets would affect the evolution of a disk. And effectively what they found is the more giant planets are in a disk, the quicker the small material gets cleared away and the disk enters its steady state. So I think that the interesting thing about the the galaxies we were discussing, how galaxies are such a different disk than a circumstellar disk, is really the the size scale and the the time scale, that the galactic disks kind of last forever, as far as we can tell, and the circumstellar disks enter into kind of a a steady state that goes on for a, a long time until the star burns out. And so they found that the giant planets in the disk clear away enough debris to make the terrestrial planets potentially habitable. And that's a pretty big finding. Interesting, yeah. It kind of reminds me of the, the, the bigger they are, the harder they fall kind of thing, where if you have a massive disk like the Milky Way, then it's less likely to be entirely disrupted by a couple of minor events. Whereas if you have a much smaller disk than maybe these smaller planets now, uh, perturb it in quite drastic ways. Interesting thought. Thank you. 
I, I think it goes back in, in some ways to the, the kind of astronomy is counterintuitive point here um, because clearing away debris in a, a circumplanetary or circumstellar disk tends to be a good thing for that disk. Right. Um, so you're saying that if you want to find a habitable planet then, you should probably look for the types of systems that have these giant planets in them as well. So for like, if the solar system didn't have Jupiter in it, then we might not even be here. Is that kind of That's exactly the right. Yeah, that's the big takeaway. So if you want to find a habitable system, you have to look for one that has more giant planets. But we can't find the giant planets. <laughs> so you have to look for one with the least amount of mass because... That means that there was a giant planet to get rid of a lot of the mass that could have been a problem for the forming, potentially habitable planet. Maybe this question doesn't make sense, but if you have a hot Jupiter in a system where it might be easier to detect, obviously that would change your observational strategy, but would it sweep up dust in the same way? So this depends on how your hot Jupiter formed, because there are a lot of different theories for this, but um, one... One of the main ideas for how these Jupiters formed is that maybe they formed outwards in the disk and then they had to migrate inwards. And if that's the case, then they probably threw out just about everything else in the system, including maybe those Earth-like planets. Um, so that's another whole issue to worry about. <laughs> um, but they might end up throwing out a lot of material as well. Um, there are also theories that the Jupiters could have potentially formed just really close to the star. Um, there are some particular arguments for how this could have happened that, you know, I really should know in a lot of detail because my advisor wrote this paper, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, about like in situ formation, which is just where the Jupiter forms around the star and there's some arguments for how that could happen. Um, and if that does happen, then it wouldn't necessarily throw out a lot of material. Um, Close-in planets are pretty inefficient at ejecting material, so if they didn't start out farther out, then they wouldn't have thrown stuff out. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're coming up toward the end here. Will, in one sentence, what's the major takeaway from your astrobite? Habitable planetary systems have the least mass because they have much less stuff to collide with. There it is. One sentence. Clear. Poignant. All right, Alex, your turn. Major takeaway. Major takeaway. The Milky Way likely formed in a massive galaxy merger about 10 billion years ago. Boom. <laughs> Milena, what's the big takeaway from your astrobite? Oh, gotta get pumped. Exomoons either form super fast or we have no idea what's happening and we need more data. Woo! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've talked about three different galactic scales. We have three disks on the table, circumplanetary, circumstellar, and uh, in my case with the galactic disk. In this case, we were talking about scale being kind of the driving factor here, but it was interesting because we found that a lot of different phenomena seem to be scale independent. Uh, I wanted to ask, are there certain disk phenomena that seem to be scale dependent? I think part of it has to do with like how often they collide with other things. Um, and that'll just depend on like the dynamical time of that system where like, for example, stars are generally collisionless, so they aren't gonna crash into each other, whereas galaxies are gonna crash into each other a lot more often. And so that's gonna be really important in how these disks evolve because 
you know, if they're just a totally beautiful, pristine, isolated system, that's going to be very different from if they have stuff that's constantly like merging into them and making them very complex in the way that seems to be the case for our Milky Way galaxy. If we're going to talk about size scale, we should talk about time scale too. The time scale of formation of a circumstellar disk may be on the order of millions of years, but then the planets in that disk could survive for billions of years. We know the Earth is billions of years old. Um, so that's a, that's a huge difference in terms of the total life, the proportion of the total life that's the actual disk life versus the Milky Way is still a disk. And its whole life it's had a disk. And so I think there is a, a huge difference in time scale that underscores just the different mechanisms that keep these things going. Yeah, we talked about in the evolution of the Milky Way in, in 10 billion years, its major evolution has been from a thin disk to a thick disk. So, <laughs> so it's still holding on. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't quite cleared away its material and formed into planets yet. But, you know, maybe if we wait a long, <laughs> long time. <laughs> <laughs> For the time, when we have galactic planets, then we'll really have something to talk about on this show. I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> now, at the very beginning of the episode, I want to kind of bring it back now uh, to the point that disks form from the averaging of many random motions. So uh, is it true that you could potentially think of disks as kind of like a not large scale in the sense of like uh, the cosmic web large scale, but large scale in the sense of it's an aggregate of many different random motions. I think that that would be a fair evaluation. What's the word I'm looking for? Something like Assessment. that. Assessment. <laughs> That's a good Alex, word. You're, you're pushing the bounds of what we can discuss <laughs> yeah. live here. My vocabulary um. isn't sufficient for this <laughs> conversation. Well, I, if you go to a small scale, I'm sure there are all sorts of tiny perturbations, oscillations, and um, incongruities that don't get caught in the large scale, that get filtered out as you get larger and larger. So yeah, I think to, to some extent, every system is going to have random motion as a part of it. Right. And like none of these is actually just like a solid, perfect disk of material. It's made up of sort of all of this smaller material that makes it as an aggregate nicely described by a disk. But, you know, in space, everything's either a disk, a sphere, or a blob. And so, you know, you, it, it has to fall under one of those categories. So we just call it a disk, you know, but <laughs> does that make it a perfect disk? I don't know. All right, everyone, you heard it here first. Everything in astronomy is either a disk, a sphere or a blob. I think that's a good place to end. So with that, we'll conclude episode one of Astro Soundbites. If you want to learn more about the three astrobites we've talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. And if you liked what you heard, check out all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Bye.